We're going to go to Psalm chapter 1 this morning, okay? Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1, of course, is the first psalm that we have in our text, and our scriptures, but it's really not the first one that was ever penned down, but that's the one we're going to look at this morning. Listen to what the psalmist has to say in Psalm chapter 1. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join with mockers. They delight in the law of the Lord. They meditate upon it day and night. They're like trees that are planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither. They prosper in all they do. But not the wicked. They're like worthless chaff that's scattered by the wind. They will be condemned at the time of judgment. Sinners will have no place among the godly, for the Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction. The psalmist starts off in verse 1 and he says, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked. Oh, the blessedness, the joy, the blessedness, the joy of the believer who does not follow after the things of the world. He or she follows after the things of Christ. They delight in the things of Christ. Everything about them, for the most part in their life as a follower of Jesus Christ, is Jesus Christ. They don't take the advice of the world. They don't get pulled by the world. They don't chase after the things of the world. They don't chase after governmental things of the world. Their main focus is the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what drives them. They don't get caught up in the things of the world. What they get caught up in is they get caught up in God's word. That's what consumes them. It consumes everything about them. In Psalms chapter 1, in Psalm chapter 1, you've really got three people. You've got the saved. We have the lost. The saved in 1 through 3, the lost is 4 through 6, and then you've got the God of Scripture, the God of Scripture we pick up in verse 2. So you've got three people, and you've got one law, one Scripture. And this should be everybody, this should be all the believers, this should be how your life is reflected, this should be how your life is lived. You and I should live our life with such a with such a desire to please Christ, to serve Christ, we should be so overwhelmed with Christ that when we come in contact with people of the world, that they know there's something different about us because we're of Christ. Even when we come in contact with people of the faith, they should say there's one that walks close with my Lord, my God. Oh, the joy and the blessing of knowing Christ. Oh, the joy and the blessing of knowing His love. You understand that. Those of you who are here this morning and are believers, I hope everyone is. But just like Justin said, you never know. The joy and blessing of understanding His mercy. The joy and blessing of understanding His his grace. That's what drives us. Our joy. Our response as a true convert when we come to faith should be... To serve Him, to glorify Him, to find joy in every aspect of that. And there's something that happens in in Paul in Acts chapter 22 that I found interesting as I was preparing these last few weeks. Something that I found interesting that popped up in Acts 22. If you want to, turn to Acts chapter 22 real quick and, and we'll look at it. Acts 22, we're going to pick up about verse 1. If you're not careful, if you're not careful as you read this passage of Scripture, you will completely blow over this, okay? At least I did. You will completely move over verse 10. Pick up in verse 1, brothers and esteemed fathers, Paul said, listen to me as I offer my defense. This is Paul giving his defense about who he is. When they heard him speaking in their own language, the silence was even greater. Paul said, I'm a Jew, I'm born of 
Tarsus. I was brought up and educated in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. As a student, I was carefully trained in all Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you today. I persecuted the followers of the way. I hounded some of them to death. Arresting both men and women, I threw them in prison. The high priest and the whole counters of elders can testify to this, for it is so. For I received letters from them to our Jewish brothers of Damascus, authorizing me to bring the followers of the way from there to Jerusalem in change and even to be punished. But as I was on the road approaching Damascus about noon, a very bright light from heaven suddenly shone around about me. I fell to the ground and I heard a verse saying, I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. The voice replied, I'm Jesus, the Nazarene. The one you are persecuting. The people with me saw the light but didn't understand the voice speaking to me. My response to this is, what should I do for you, Lord? The immediate response from the Apostle Paul in his face-to-face meeting with the Redeemer of the world, when he heard his voice, if you will, what should I do for you, Lord? What can I do for you? This is the beginning of Paul's life, the Apostle Paul's life, and his understanding of what it is to live a blessed life, what it is to live a joyful life in Christ. We all have to start somewhere when we come to faith. See, we've been so programmed before you come to faith, you were programmed to understand, to think that joy, that happiness, it come from what? It come from the world, right? It come from the entertainment of the world, things of the world. That's how you lived your life. But then when you come to faith in Christ, you see no true blessedness according to Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. True blessedness, true joy, comes from who? It comes from Christ. It comes from Jesus. It comes from knowing Him. It comes from being consumed with Him. At this point in Paul's life, he was on the path to understanding true joy. He was forever learning, wasn't he? He was always learning. Early on, he was learning what it was to be joyful, what it was to be blessed. And he says here, Lord, what should I do? What can I do to follow you? For us here this morning, I know we're here at the conference, the deeply rooted conference, the inaugural one, and... When we leave here today, it should be, Lord, what can I do to follow you? What can I do to serve you? What can I do to be so deeply rooted in you? What can I do to be so set in you? What can I do to be so consumed with you? This would lead the Apostle Paul into a deeper understanding of Christ. This would lead the Apostle Paul to a deeper understanding of Scripture. You know, the deeper you go into Scripture, the deeper you go into God's Word, the deeper you go, the more blessed you become, the more joyful you become, the more understanding of who Christ is you become. You see it. You see the believer that's been saved for 15, 20, 25 years, and he or she is, their theology, their understanding of Christ, their understanding of Scripture is like they just come to faith six months ago. They're very weak. They vacillate, don't they? They get tossed to and fro with the things of the world. They try to find a blessedness. They try to find a joy. They try to find something to root themselves in spiritually. And they're just kind of beat up. Why is that? Because they didn't root themselves in the author of Scripture. They might be saved by Him, but they have not rooted themselves in the author of Scripture. 
on your lap this morning, in front of you this morning, is literally the voice of the Creator God. His Word. That's what it is. I heard Steve Lawson say one time, he said, you want to hear God speak, then read the Bible. Then read the Bible. It's, it's, it's so true. So true. I'm not talking about being rooted in tradition. We see a lot of that, do we not? Traditional way of thinking. We, we know where that gets us. Traditional ways in man. It's mentioned in Mark chapter 7 verse 8. The disgust of tradition within the church. Paul references it something similar in Colossians chapter 2 verse 8. Philosophies of man. Tradition. Passed down from generation to generation within the church, within the house of God. Doesn't really have any deep meaning. It's just something that they've seen over and over and over and over again. And they think it's theology. They think it's deep theology. They think it's deep scripture. They think it's rooted in the word of God. But in reality, it's just rooted in tradition that's been passed on through time. There's no really true joy there. There's no really true blessedness there. I heard somebody one time, they gave this analogy. They said that there's a little girl who was standing by her mom one morning as she was preparing Christmas ham. The mom took the ham and she dropped the ham and she cut three inches off the left, three inches off the right, threw that away and put the ham in a pot and put it in the oven. The little girl asked her mama, said, Mama, why do you do that? She said, I don't know. Your grandmother's always did it. So she went and she asked her grandmother. She said, Grandmother, mom took the ham, she cut three inches off the left, three inches off the right, threw that away, put the centerpiece in the pot and threw it in the oven. Why? Her grandmother said, I don't know, ask your great-grandmother. Great-grandmother's barely making it, she's on oxygen, she's rocking in the, in the rocking chair. She goes and asks her great-grandmother, great-grandmother, my mama was cooking ham, she cut three inches off the left, three inches off the right, threw it away, put the middle piece in the oven, cooked it for Christmas dinner. Why did she do that? Great-grandmother leaned over and she patted her little great-granddaughter on the head. She says, well, because at my time I didn't have two extra pots, so I just threw it away. You see where tradition gets you. That's where tradition gets you. There's really nothing there. It's not about being deeply rooted in tradition. It's about being rooted in the things of Christ. It's about being deeply rooted in God's Word. And the psalmist references it back in Psalm chapter 1. And like I said, according to Acts chapter 22, verse 10, if you read it, you will blow over that verse. Paul was on his way to understanding what it is for, oh, the joy of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked. Oh, the blessedness of those who do not follow the advice of the wickedness or Stand around with the sinners. So there's joy in that. Interesting thing about Psalm chapter 1, 1 through 3, is it's almost a mirror. It's almost a mirror of Psalm 119, 1 through 3. It's amazing. The similarities there in Psalm 1, 1 through 3 and Psalm 119, 1 through 3. It's almost a mirror. It's like you're, you're reading the same psalm. It's incredible. They both talk at the beginning. They both talk about joy. They do, both talk about blessedness. They both talk about being focused, being solidly focused on the things of, of Christ, of the Lord God. They both talk about not following the things of the world, not sitting around with, with the sinfulness of the world. They both talk about being solidly planted and delighting in the law of God. So there's a super similarity with Psalm 1, 1 through 3, and Psalm 119, 1 through 3. And we all understand, if you're anybody who reads Scripture, you've read Scripture in the past, you understand Psalm 119, pretty much the whole psalm does what? It lifts what? Man, it just lifts Scripture. It proclaims Scripture. It proclaims the author of Scripture. It tells of Scripture. It's a beautiful psalm. If you've never really studied Psalm 119, study it. It's a kind of repetitive motion, a repetitive announcement of the importance of the Word of God. 
And if there's one thing that's lacking in the church today, if there's one thing that's lacking definitely in the church today, in the modern church, is this church as a whole, is the understanding of Scripture. If there's a lack of understanding of Scripture, there's a lack of understanding of who? The author of Scripture. You're exactly right. Back to Psalm 1, verse 1. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked. Learn in your life as a believer. I hope you are, but if not, learn in your life to get your advice, to get your direction, not from the world, but from Scripture. Learn to do that. Learn to, for that to be a daily habit within you. To where your advice is from Scripture and not the world. There's a reference in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. You can turn if you want, but in 6.14, Paul is going to pick up something very familiar that kind of ties into this. I want you to, to hear it. Listen to what Paul says, something similar to this, as he's talking to the Corinthian church. The Corinthians, bless their hearts, if you know anything about the Corinthian church, man, did they have it rough. I mean, you think we got it bad. These guys had a church right in the pit of hell, it seems like. Look in, the, in the, the history of Corinth. But listen to what Paul's advice was to them. Because he knew there would be struggles, okay? He knew there was going to be struggles in the church. Do not team up, do not get tied up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partaker with the wickedness of the world? How can light live with darkness? What harmony is there with Christ and the devil? Beloved. What unity is there, he's saying. What unity is there, Paul is saying, between a lost person and a saved one? What unity? There's nothing. There's nothing in common. Outside of the things of the world, that's pretty much about it. So what are you saying? We're supposed to completely shut ourselves off from the world? No, we're not supposed to completely shut ourselves off from the world. I mean, scripture says you would have to leave the world. Paul says you'd have to leave the world, I think, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to do that. But you know where the cutoff starts. Paul's saying, listen, may your life be one that is not tied to an unbeliever, in such a way that he or she directs you, leads you, guides you. One of the bad things about in our day and time and something that's taken, taken storm with, within the church similar to this is that kind of ties into 2 Corinthians chapter 16, 14, and 15 and on down in, in Psalm chapter 1 verse 1 and 2. One of the bad things is, is this noticed a lot. You've got unbelievers that are, that are in, in, or you've got believers that are in relationships with what? Unbelievers. And it's found its way into the church. And instead of the church taking a stand against it, church is turning a blind eye to it for whatever reason. They don't want to rock the boat or whatever it may be. Listen, you may know, I personally know, those that are of the faith that are married to unbelievers. Let me tell you something. Those that are of the faith that are married to unbelievers, it's not, it's, it's not a pleasant time. Many times within their marriage, it's difficult. If that, if that believer is truly going to follow after the things of Christ. If they're truly going to follow after things of Christ, it's going to be extremely difficult in their life. And it's just like you and me today, as we, as we truly, if we're going to truly serve the Lord Jesus, if we're going to truly try to understand what it is to be joyful, to be blessed by Christ, to serve Him, to be rooted, to be deeply rooted in the things of Christ, if we're going to truly do that, we've got to refrain from putting obstacles in front of us, which is what? A barrage of the things of the world, a barrage of the unbelievers that just what? That just redirects us in our desires. How can a believer be part with an unbeliever, Paul is saying? 
He's speaking to the Corinthian church. Like I said, if he, I'm not going to get into it for time's sake, but the Corinthian church, they had it rough. There was so much influence, so much idol worship, so much influence going on within the church. I don't want to get into the depth of the, of the worship because due to some ears here this morning, but it's pretty bad. So he understood and he's seen how quickly a believer, especially a new believer, a new convert, can have their joy, can have their blessedness affected simply because they've caught back up with the things of the world. He was warning of them of that. What union can there be between God's temple and idols? Can there be any union, he's saying? Can there be anything? For we are the temple of the living God. I will live in them and I will walk among them. I'll be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among unbelievers, from among them. Separate yourself from them, the Lord says. Don't touch the things of them and I will welcome you. I'll be your father and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And in verse 1, chapter 7 says this, Because we have these promises, dear friends. Let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or our spirit. Let us work toward complete holiness because we fear God. Because we have a respect for God. Because we have a awe of who Christ is. Ask yourself this morning, how is your awe of the Lord God? How is your respect of Him? How is your fear of Christ? Can you dabble in sin and it really doesn't make you shudder? Can you look upon sin and it really doesn't bother you? Man, when a good looking woman walks by, can you stare at her and it really doesn't bother you anymore? Only you can answer that personal question. How deep is our relationship with our Lord, with our Savior, with our God? You know, we talk to somebody that's a believer in Christ, like I said before, and it seems like their life is just in shambles, spiritually speaking, and then you get deep into their life and talk to them more and more, and you see that their, their worship is, is very minimal. You see that their prayer life is very minimal. You see that their study of Scripture is very minimal. And you ask them, why is this? And, and you get these well-rehearsed answers over and over and over again that they've got in their mind. And, and they've basically trained themselves to believe their own, their own bull. When the reality is, is the reason why their joy is affected, the reason why their blessedness is affected, because it sets in their own lap. A lot of times we, we sit around and you hear believers say, well, Satan made me do that. Satan didn't make you do nothing. He's not omnipresent. He can only be at one place at one time. He didn't make you do anything. You're so wicked, depraved in your own flesh. Most of the time the demons of hell can just leave you alone and let you do as you want. Let us plant ourselves in Scripture. Let us plant ourselves in the Word of God. And that's what the psalmist is saying in chapter 1 and verse 1. Let us not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers. Let us not find that, let us not go after that advice. Let's not stand around with them. Some would say about the conference today, ah, it's just another church trying to do something and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, you, you hear it. You probably already heard it up to this point today. No. This is a time where we get together, as Justin said this morning. We get together to worship a holy God, a righteous God. It's a privilege, it's an honor to come together, open up the Word of God, 
Study it together. Listen to the word of God speak to us. Listen to Christ speak to us through this book of many books and letters. It's a privilege. It's an honor. So what he says in verse 2. But they delight in the law of the Lord. They meditate on it day and night. The question is this. What do you delight in? What do you meditate in? That's the question. You're meditating in something. You're delighting in something. You're rooted in something. Guarantee that. Everybody here is rooted in something. Everybody here is meditating on something. Everybody here is delighting in something in their everyday life. Okay, we live in a part of the nation. You know what's happening today at 3.30. I mean, I've heard it all week. Okay, many people are delighting. They're meditating on what's going to happen today at 3.30 in the sports world. It's going to consume them. For us, it's this. What are you meditating on? What is delighting you? What are you rooted in? That's the big question. Not just for today, not just until 3.30, but in everyday life. What are you rooted in? What are you meditating on? It's the things of the world? Or is it Christ? Is it the things of the world? Or is it Scripture? The author of Scripture? Only you can answer that question. Only I can answer that question. He says, but they delight in the law of the Lord. They meditate on it day and night. In other words, for most of the day, the solid believer is so consumed with the things of Christ. It drives him. It consumes him and her. They delight in it. They don't find themselves dominated by sin. But they find themselves dominated by Scripture. They love it. Scriptures, if it wasn't that important to us as believers, then the Lord God would have left it out. He gave it to us for a reason. Remember what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse, verse 15. He told Timothy, he said, Timothy, study the word. Study the word, Timothy. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed. He or she will rightly divide the word of God. Timothy, you do this. Timothy, you so consume yourself in Scripture and what little they had at that time. You so meditate on it day and night, Timothy. Why do we think in Deuteronomy, I think in chapter 5 or 6, somewhere in that area, where the Lord God commanded the Israelites to what? In the teaching of their children? To place the Scripture upon their foreheads and every day as a constant reminder of the law of God, of, of the God of Israel, of the God of Scripture. Paul's command to Timothy was to study the Word for a reason. And one of the reasons was this. Because if you know anything about the Apostle Paul's life, he was on the back end of his life in 2 Timothy. It's pretty much it. He's waiting for death. Timothy, I'm not going to be here any longer. You're going to have to do it yourself. You're going to have to rely on Christ yourself. You're going to have to learn yourself. It's the same thing for us. As generations pass, generations step in, right? And when you would think the next generation would be a little bit spiritually stronger than the prior generation, it seems like we're going the complete opposite direction, doesn't it? We're becoming weaker and weaker, spiritually speaking, in understanding of Scripture. Paul to Timothy was, Timothy, you're young. Do not get misled. 
study the word. The big question for us this morning is, how is your study time of scripture? How is your study time of word? In John chapter 21, in preparing this, I thought about, I couldn't help but think about, I've always found Peter a very interesting guy. Because the same guy that was all over the place early on in his life and his following of the Lord Jesus Christ is the same one that wrote First and Second Peter. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, Peter was a train wreck. I mean, his guy couldn't keep... I mean, he was, he, he was a firecracker early on. If he thought it, it'd come out of his mouth. And most of the time, he probably didn't like what he had to say. After all, he was the one guy that took the sword and swung for the head of one of the guards and caught the ear. But in John chapter 21, Christ questions to Peter. He, he, he questions Peter three times. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? You say, okay. He asked him three times, do you love me? But after each time, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Teach them the word. Teach them Christ. Teach them me. Teach them who I am. Remind them of me. It's as if hard-headed Peter didn't get it the first time out of the gate. Sound familiar? We're all hard-headed, aren't we? We only see everybody else's head instead of our own. We don't realize that we're hard-headed just like everybody else. Might be at a different level. But again, he tells Peter, do you love me? You know, I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. Teach them me. Teach them to meditate upon me. Teach them that I'm the Messiah. I'm the Redeemer of the world. Teach them. And again, a third time. Do you love me, Peter? I mean, by this time, Peter gets a little what? He gets a little uneasy. Kind of snaps back. Lord, you know I love you. You know I love you, Lord. In other words, how dare you ask me the third time? Teach my people. Teach them to meditate upon me. I pray that's how you are in your own life. That you're not only teaching yourself according to Scripture through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but that you're teaching those around you at every opportunity that presents itself. Learn to be a teacher of Scripture. You say, why that? Learn to be one who teaches, who delights in the law of God, and who teaches it. Why that? Because if I found out anything in my, in my walk with Christ, it's this. If you're going to teach Christ, if you're going to teach Scripture, whether it's to a six-month-old, or to a 50-year-old, you better know what you are talking about. It's the quickest way to learn. Quickest way to learn. But they delight in the law. They meditate upon it day and night. Christ to Peter. Teach them to meditate upon me. Teach them to meditate upon who I am. You must do this, Peter. You must do this. Paul to Timothy was something similar. You must do this, Timothy. You must do this. Like I said before, the miserable Christian is rooted in a weak reading, studying of Scripture. They just are. They're rooted in that. To be rooted in anything else outside of Christ is to be rooted in something that's inevitably just going to end. And you're going to have to find yourself rooted in something else. 
The church should never be built, and it's not our job to build the church, but the church should never, Christ said, I'll build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But the church should be so focused, so built, so structured on the things of who? Christ. should always be like that. Listen to what it says in verse 3. They'll be like trees planted along the riverbank. It'll be like trees that are firmly planted. I was reading something just it's probably about a year ago or so. I was reading about a tree called the shepherd's tree. The shepherd's tree resides in a the Kala Kalahari Desert or somewhere in Africa. I hope I'm saying that right. I'm not going to give it its big fancy name. We'll just call it the shepherd's tree because that's short for it. Because I don't want to butcher the name. I can barely get through the desert name. But the reason why I bring up the shepherd's tree is this. I mean, it's, it's just right there in the desert. The blazing heat. The question's always been, how in the world does this tree survive? I mean, it's over 100 degrees. Hot. Very minimal rain, day in and year in and year out. Normal plants would not make it. They would not make it. So how is it possible? Because if you read about the shepherd's tree, you find out that the shepherd's tree in the Calahari Desert is rooted some 200 to 230 feet deep into the desert. Extreme amount of depth. One of the deepest rooted trees that we know of today. Why is that? Why did the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, create such a tree, place it in the middle of the desert, and give it such a deep root system? Because if it didn't have such a deep root system, it would not survive. It would not survive. Because at the end of the root system is what? Water. Nourishment. Vitamins, mineral. All that that tree will need to sustain itself, to survive the elements of the desert. You say, well, why say that? Because this. If you are shallowly rooted in Scripture, if that tree was shallowly rooted in the desert, it wouldn't be much of a tree, would it? If you're shallowly rooted in Scripture, if your root system in Scripture only goes down but a little bit, then listen to me. You will not be much of a servant of Christ. Why? Because you will be beat up. You will be withered. You will struggle daily. Like the shepherd's tree, if it wasn't deeply rooted. You know what I'm talking about. Those of you who got flowers, you water them through the warm, through the dry spell of the summer, and if you, man, you, you miss a day of watering, and they just, you got a 200 bucks in a tree or a bush, and it starts to wither in a day. Why? Because its root system is not that deep, it's not tapping into anything, and you must continuously give it water. And it's the same thing for us. If our root system is not that deep, if it's not truly tapping anything spiritually speaking, then we are left with what? We are left as, as withering trees. We're, we're not really that strong. And, and it's interesting, and a withering believer, a believer who who's just comes and goes, who, who's weak in their faith, they always kind of get offended by the believer that's solid in Scripture. Have you ever noticed that? You get a believer that's, man, he or she sold out to Christ, and, and you got the believer who's, who's not, and the believer who's not just kind of gets a little offended by the one who sold out to Christ and making you know, this and that, just says this and that about the one who's truly sold out to Christ. It's their conscience that hits them because one's rooted deeply and the other's not. And what happens, listen what it says, what happens to a tree that's, that's deeply rooted along the riverbank? It bears fruit each season. 
it bears fruit. Each season, there's a bearing of fruit. There's a season that comes and it bears fruit. And this proves what? This proves what it is. This proves what it is. Matthew chapter 7. Response from disciples and others. Lord, how will we know? Lord, how will we know if they're of the faith? Lord, how are we going to know if they're of the faith? The Lord Jesus' response to the question was what? Matthew 7, 15 through 20, somewhere around there, was what? You'll know them by the fruit. You'll know them by the fruit they bear. Are they deeply rooted along the riverbank of my Father? You'll know that. That's how you'll know. You'll know by what type of fruit they bear. That's how you'll know their life. The question for you and for me again is this. Are we rooted along the river bank of Christ? Does our mind, does the roots of who we are, does it run deep into the things of Christ? Do you bear fruit to prove who you are? Is that who you are as a believer? Or are you a believer that people have to look long and hard before they see anything? There's one thing, the biggest thing that keeps us from being rooted in Christ. It's the sinful nature. It's the sinful flesh. And it affects our, our, our everyday life. There's a passage of scripture in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 1 through 10. I'm going to read really quick because it, it just it speaks volumes to what we're looking at about being deeply rooted. And that those that are deeply rooted bear the benefits of being deeply rooted in the Creator God, and those that are not bear the consequences. Listen to what Jeremiah chapter 17 says, and I'm just going to read, I'm trying to turn to I'm going to go ahead and read it as you turn and do the time. The sin of Judah is inscribed with an iron chisel. It's engraved with a diamond point on their stony hearts and on the corners of their altars. The sin of Judah is engraved deep with a diamond point into their stony hearts. There's a reason why it says diamond point, because if you know anything about the, the, the line of work that I'm in, we use a lot of diamond tools, diamond cutting tools, diamond bits, diamond blades or whatever. And if we just use a regular bit to drill through concrete that's not diamond tipped, it's not a pretty expensive bit, then if it doesn't have diamonds, it doesn't go deep, it just burns up rather quickly. But you see here, the, the more the diamonds on the blade, the more the diamonds on the tip, the deeper it goes. The sin of Judah is inscribed with an iron chisel engraved with a diamond point on their stony hearts, deep, on the corners of their altar. Judah's sin has run deep, even so that their children go to worship in the sin. Listen, you must learn to destroy the sin that's in you. We as parents or grandparents must learn to destroy the sin that's in us. If we do not destroy the sin that's in us, it's just a matter of time before the sin that's in you will find its sin in your child. For the most part. It always finds its way out, doesn't it? So I'll hand over my holy mountain. I'm going to move this to the point where I'm getting to eight, or chapter 17, verse 8. I'll hand them over my holy mountain along with all your wealth and treasure and your pagan shrines. As the plunder to your enemies, for sin runs rampant in your land. In other words, because they were not deeply rooted in the things of God, judgment will come. They found themselves deeply rooted in idol worship. And from that stand all kind of sin. From that idol worship just branched off to all kind of sin. The wonderful possession I reserved for you, which was what? The land of Canaan. Will slip from your hands. I will tell your enemies to take you as captives to a foreign land. For my anger blazes like a fire that will burn forever. This is the consequences of sin. 
This is what the Lord says. Curse are those who put their trust in mere humans, who rely on human strength, and turn their hearts away from the Lord. They are like stunted shrubs in the desert. With no hope for the future. In other words, they're like shrubs in the desert that are not rooted. They will live in a barren wilderness. In an uninhabited salty land. But blessed are those. Remember that? Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed. Joy. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord. Who have, their, who have made their Lord their hope and their confidence. For they shall be like trees planted along a river bank. With roots that run deep into the water. These such trees are not bothered by the heat. Or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green. And they never stop producing fruit. If you want to be blessed, if you want to understand true blessedness, true joyfulness, you see right here in Jeremiah chapter 17, which ties perfectly in to Psalm chapter 1, true blessedness, true joyfulness, spiritually happiness comes when you are rooted in Christ and Christ alone. For Judah, they were rooted in idol worship and they paid the price. Me and you serve a holy God that does not look upon sin lightly. Though society might tell us that it does, that he does, but he does not. He does not look upon sin lightly. And of course, you can I'm not going to go to Isaiah chapter 5, but Isaiah chapter 5 is, just, is a perfect example of Israel as they totally just went down the wrong path and suffered horrendous consequences and judgment because they found themselves no longer rooted in the God of Scripture, but rooted in idol worship and the things of the world. You can't get around it. Back to Psalm chapter 1, verse 3. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither. They prosper in all they do. This is not a worldly prosper he's talking about. This is a spiritual one. This is a spiritual prosper. This is one who prospers spiritually. This is one who, people say, well, my goodness gracious, you look at the Apostle Paul's life, his life was absolute. I mean, he was just under, you know, so much persecution, so much, you know, going on in his life, so many beatings and whippings. You see that in, in 1 Corinthians, I think, chapter 11. He talks about all that he went through and that he had to carry the church on top of that. And But through all that, through all that, Paul found joy and blessedness and steadfastness, steadfastness. In the things of Christ. That's where he found it. He understood its importance. He understood it. For time's sake, I'm not going to go over to Psalm chapter 19. My goodness, would I love to go to Psalm 19. Because it ties so perfectly into, into Psalm 1 verse 3. And, and the beauty. Psalm 19, 7 through 14. And the beauty of God's word. But. We're just going to have to move from that. But verse 4, because I just want to hit on verse 4, 5, and 6, and then we'll, and then we'll close rather, rather quickly. But if you do got time in your own personal study, listen, go to Psalm 19, 7 through 14, if you got time in your own personal study. It's, it's a beautiful passage of, of the amazing detail and beauty of God's word. But anyway, in verse 4 in Psalm chapter 1, but not the wicked, they're like worthless chaff. Chaff was the outside section of, of grain, of, of the grain that was peeled back. It was useless and they would just, in the, in the, in the threshing floor, they would, it would just be swept up and thrown away and thrown to the wind and pretty much a useless item used to make fire. 
He's saying, no, but the wicked, they're like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. He said, you and I probably won't pick up much on this, the word chaff, if that's what your translation is saying. But to the writer and to the ears of, you know, at this day and time, they would have picked up really quick that an unbeliever is of no use. It's of no use to the worship of a holy God. Because they understood that chaff was worthless and it was of no use. It will be condemned by the time of judgment. Sinners have no place among the godly. We just read that, did we not, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6? For the Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of wicked of the wicked will always lead to destruction. We just read that in Jeremiah chapter 17. You can go on and on with this stuff. So as we close this morning, my my desire for you is this is 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 twofold. Is one to examine your own walk with Christ, examine your own study of Christ, examine your own study of Scripture, to, to examine it, to keep it close, to see how deeply rooted you are into the Word of God and its truth. To do that. And also to remember, as you leave today, that there's many among you, there's many around you as you walk out this door today and as you go through your week next week that are that are being scattered like worthless chaff. In other words, there's many unbelievers around you. It's your job and it's my job, one of our jobs as believers, is to give them the good news of Christ. To give them the good news of Christ. For if you do not, and I do not, then who will? The lost doesn't evangelize the lost. It must always come through us. Albeit we don't do the saving, but we are the vessel that proclaims the mercy of Christ. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we, we love you and we thank you for all that you do. And to you goes the glory and the honor. Father, without you we are nothing. We're useless. But because of you, we are everything. Use us for your glory and for your honor. And may we be wise servants. May we seek to follow you, to glorify you, to praise you. May we seek to lift you up in all we do. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.